0: Hello and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. If you're a founder of a B2C business and currently fundraising, I run a private newsletter where I share companies to past and future guests of the show that I think are interesting. If you'd like to apply to be on the newsletter, head over to theconsumervc.com. Backslash startup. So this episode is a bit different. This is a compilation episode about fundraising from the founders' perspective. We discuss some of their tactics, strategies when they're evaluating investors, and and also how they initially reached out to investors and were able to develop a network. The founders featured are Kate Boyle from Banjo Robinson, Nadine Habayab from Bohana, Adele Archer from Arternova, George Milton from Yellow Bird Sauce, which is an amazing hot sauce company, and Jessica Rolfe and Rod Morris, co-founders of Love Every. Please enjoy. First up, we have Kate Boyle, who's the founder and CEO of Banjo-Robinson. Banjo Robinson is a magical cat that writes personalized letters, which turn reading, writing, and learning about the world into a magical game for five to eight-year-olds. So Kate, what was your due diligence process when evaluating investors?
1: I mean, it was extensive. We had a lot of interest in Banjo um, and we had a lot of people coming at us with really attractive valuations, and you know, equity, uh, equity offers. We obviously spoke with all the founders that we could through um, introductions by the by the VCs. But in a sense, that's like checking out references. Like, of, you know, of course, the <laughs> the references are always going to say great things about the the funds. One of the amazing things about Textiles is that it just taps you into this absolutely huge network of um, people. So we were able to ask around and ask for people's experiences of working with those funds of being funded by those funds of doing deals with those funds of co-funding with those funds and then you know huge amount of it was the people themselves so not just the fund uh, particularly with collaborative fund we absolutely love their um, ethos of you know what's good for a consumer for me for you is you know should not be considered at odds with what's good with the world. And, and, and rather, you know, if we look at that overlap of what's good for us and what's good for the world, that's where they invest. And that's, you know, absolutely our our thinking behind Banjo is that, you know, I, I was always an inventor. I always had, I was, I used to call myself like an, an ideas factory. I had too many ideas. I couldn't execute on them. And it was such a, sort of an eternal frustration that I had all these ideas that I couldn't move on them all, and and another frustration was that I wanted to move, dedicate my time to something that was both lucrative and had potential to scope and scale, but also which did good in the world, and I could sleep at night about and feel good about, and that's exactly, you know, what collaborative fund are about, is is that sort of, that sweet spot between lucrative and scalable and interesting and disruptive and not fucking the world up you know not making not making crap that the world doesn't need and you know (laughs) or rather making stuff that is uh, beneficial and um, helps the world and so absolutely huge big part of the decision was that and you know I grew up on Sesame Street so to work with a fund which is albeit in a very tenuous way connect, connected through Sesame Workshop and Sesame, Sesame Ventures is, um, is an absolute thrill because you know like basically wanted to do a deal with the Cookie Monster since I was five you know <laughs> it's a deal but you know <laughs> it's been a long time coming. <laughs> the Sesame Workshop is was the original disruptor right it's uh, its founders or, or, or the, the creators of Sesame Street at Sesame Workshop were. Um, super aware of how addictive tv is and they said how can we use this addictive power for good why don't we try and educate children through the tv and so they you know for um, decades now have you know worked out a way to do that with grace and um teaching not just abcs and one two threes but empathy and kindness and friendship and you know obviously sesame street is not sesame uh, but workshop is not uh, Sesame Ventures, but but that kind of flavor of ethics and kindness and wanting to do something good in the world is a real through line for, from not just our, our big VC investors, but our angels as well. There's absolutely not a single investor on our cap table that I wouldn't happily go to dinner with and have a really interesting conversation with and, and feel very much like we were on the same page in terms of where we think this brand can, do, can go and what we think this brand can do both in terms of finance and, and good. Um, I probably sound really idealistic, but it's the truth that we just, we were able to pick and choose people that we really liked. And then the last thing is that, you know, we met early on Lauren Lochteb, um and later Taylor Green at Collaborative Fund. And we just really loved our conversation. So Lauren was immediately passionate and enthusiastic and, of smiles and our calls were and another thing and another thing and we could do this and we could do this and what about this and oh my goodness this is great and you know and you just it's just obvious you know just obviously get it and uh are on the same page and then that's that's continued we really love um working with Taylor as well Lauren um ultimately the 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 relationship and the calls with um the individuals at the fund is again super super important so yeah due diligence asking your network your instinct and uh you know people's enthusiasm for um asking questions as well obviously like you know in the same way that they're asking you questions founders I would say if I was an investor and a founder wasn't you know interviewing me or wasn't asking me questions about what I you know just basic stuff like what what does this look like if it's successful and you know what what would you do under these circumstances you know what's what do you think the opportunity is here what are you passionate about if If both parties aren't asking each other those questions, I I, I sort of always wonder what's going on.
0: Brought up some excellent points, making sure that you ask questions and do your own due diligence and not even talk to maybe the companies that, that the investors has backed that has given great references about the investors, but those companies that haven't actually maybe worked out. As you talked about it immensely, you know, there's always problems along the way. It's very, very hard to do.
1: No, look, absolutely. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. And, uh, I'm embarrassed that I didn't say it. Like, look, the first question you, um, sorry, the, one of the most interesting questions you can ask is absolutely every, con- every company has, uh, stuff go wrong and things don't go to plan. And, um, what do you do? What do you do as a founder? What do you do as a, a vC? What do you do as an investor, as an angel? Things go wrong all the time, and then there are companies that don't work out and the and both those scenarios happen, and you want to understand you know when the ship is righted and the course is corrected, how that happened. and you also want to understand what went wrong in cases where the course couldn't be corrected and the company you know didn't go on to raise another round and you want to see sort of how everybody behaved in those circumstances because they part of the process that we're all going to have problems and you know things aren't always going to be easy.
0: Next up we have Nadine, who's one of the co-founders and CEO of Bohana. Bohana is a pop water lily seed snack brand that believes in a free-spirited snacking. So Nadine, I wanted to know, how did you approach fundraising and what made you consider fundraising? You know,
2: in the beginning of our business, Trail and I we really bootstrapped. We self-invested. We were each worked before starting the business and put any of all of our own money into it, and we looked to our to fundraising from our community. We were uh, applying for equity free grants, participated in a couple of awesome accelerators. We would do all the pitch competitions that existed, <laughs> so we did get um, some small checks from pitch competitions that we were that we were able to participate in and were successful in. And so that was a lot of the way that we were fundraising in the early stages. We were not spending uh, on anything other than the the development of the brand at that point. We started selling um, and then realized, you know, we wanted to, we realized the amount of, of investment that was needed for growth. Consumer education is very expensive marketing is very expensive for a brand new ingredient. And at the time we were doing it alone. There were no other popped water lily seeds in the market yet. Today, there are a couple others that are definitely helping with that consumer education element. We're not the only ones doing it alone, but at the time we were. And so we were having a lot of conversations with early stage venture capitalists. We were uh, meeting a lot of wonderful people. And I think what we had done you know, for better or for worse, we were definitely too small for a lot of those VCs and we spent a lot of time pitching to them. And everyone was really great, gave us wonderful feedback, advice. We got to build those connections early on. Though we weren't the right fit at the time for many people, we were able to get a lot of great feedback to build our our brand and we, and we continued to do so, still not having raised And then we decided to just do a friends and family round. So our seed round was friends and family that we launched um, end of last year. And we just closed, uh, which wrapped up with Shark Tank. And I think this is really a, this was a great step for us. It was the first sort of formal fundraise that we have done. We have our friends and family invested and, we have some great ambassadors with us and we've raised uh, a seed round that can get us really to the next level.
0: Next up we have Adele Archer, CEO and founder of Eternova. Eternava celebrates remarkable lives by making diamonds from ashes. Adele, talk to me a bit about your first time fundraising.
3: So, I mean, when we, you know, kind of, we we hit a a special inflection point and we're like, okay, you know, clearly we've proved this out. Um, You know, this this absolutely, um, there's absolutely a business here and a big business here. Um, So, you know, why not take on some investments so that we can really start to accelerate growth. Um, So Q1 of 2019, um, we did a strategic angel round. Um, Target there was 800,000. We oversubscribed to 1.2. And, you know, really that was, uh, we were very intentional about who we brought into that round, Um, wanted ideally mostly prior founders. And that's exactly what we did, both technology and consumer founders and entrepreneurs that have all had, you know, 250 million plus exits under their belt. And I just can't say enough amazing things about our our angels and our investors. They just are wind at our back and, and have been so incredibly helpful opening doors and, you know, supporting us and, you know, just just everything. They're amazing. And then after that, we did a, um, we, we were on Shark Tank. Um, so we received an investment from Mark Cuban. Um, so that was super awesome and exciting. And then we also just completed a seed round right now in the midst of a pandemic. So that was pretty exciting as well.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. And congrats on the first as well. Did you have a particular strategy for Shark Tank or like what also compelled you to apply?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, you know, we were, uh, actually recruited on the show, so that was, uh, kind of, yeah, cool experience. Thank you. Um, and yeah, it was, uh, you definitely want to go into Shark Tank with a strategy, I would say. Um, you know, I think it's not for everybody's business. Um, you know, you certainly are, are not getting the best deal terms, <laughs> <and> yeah, <laughs> you know, that you would go get on the market, but, um, uh, I think, you know, it, if, it, if you are a company that, you know, benefits from or, or you know, needs to raise awareness, you know, in our case, a lot of people don't even know that this is something that you can do. Um, so this is a wonderful way to share and to educate. Um, we're also an incredibly word of mouth friendly business. On average, when somebody hears about us, they tell 20 other people um, about us and there's 7 million people that watch shark tank so you know 7 times 20 okay like i feel like the math makes sense you know to uh, to go do this and um you know going into it you, you know i feel like if i am to advise anybody going on to it you really want to know kind of what your parameters are of you know deals that you will and won't take but you know optimizing to take a deal um you know there's I can't conclusively say, you know, how they uh, end up deciding who airs, who doesn't, but about 25% of people that film don't air. Um, And so, you know, we believe your odds of airing, um, you know, go up if you take a deal. So it's, uh, it's important to kind of know your parameters and, you know, then just, uh, you know, do everything you, you can to, to share how special you know, of a company you've built, you know, and share that with the world. And we were, we were really fortunate. We actually got one of the top 5% valuations ever offered on Shark that was great
0: amazing congratulations that's fantastic wanted to want to just kind of hear feedback in terms of what was the most what were kind of your biggest skeptics what were the most concerns from from investors throughout the fundraising process
3: i would say so probably to bubble up you know our our price point is higher than you know i'd say like kind of the the normal d to c play is you know a few like kind of Fifty to a hundred dollar price point, and it's all about volume. Whereas we're at a higher price point, and so I think it's um, demonstrating to people that this is a massive opportunity, and um, you know, kind of like really walking them through the math on how you really don't need that many customers, you know, to build very quickly to hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. So that was one, and and the way that we ended up doing that that was really effective was you know really kind of cr- like creating a graph that's really about take rate. It's you know here's how many People are passing away in the United States every year. You know, here's how many say that they would do a diamond. Here's what our funeral home partners are forecasting as a sell through. You know, 2% of of all deaths in the United States, well, that's $500 million in addressable. And that's not including pets. That's not including international. That's not including urns that are sitting in family homes. So I think really kind of like breaking it down and walking them through the math, they can see that, holy cow, this is 25 Billion dollars just with diamonds alone, so that was a big one. And then um, the other one is a lot of VCs have seen um, different plays in in the death care space that, in, and really, haven't been a ton of kind of breakout stories. So I think you know you'll probably see that as a founder as you get kind of lumped in with other companies that have tackled an industry before and they haven't seen a breakout yet. So I think it's it was very important for us to kind of show how you know other folks were looking at like trust and will you know design tools and and we're you know very much focused on the person that's left behind after a loss not planning ahead Um, and when you think about that intensity of customer need you know somebody is coming to us as a way to honor somebody and to like help heal some like major pain that they're feeling, you know, and that's quite a bit different than somebody who you're trying to encourage, you know, to go and, and write their will out when, you know, they think they're invincible and they're not going to die. Um, so I think it's, it's kind of important to, to differentiate yourself, you know, in terms of what you're doing and, and how it's meeting a real need for people.
0: Now we have George Milton, CEO and founder of Yellowbird Hot Sauce. So, George. wanted to also talk, as you're scaling, about the reasons why, since this is a a venture capital podcast, why you chose to fundraise and your fundraising strategy uh, initially.
4: Yeah, uh, the the choosing why to fundraise or that we wanted to fundraise, that was a really tough choice for us um, because we came into this with very like it was completely bootstrapped like you know like i i borrowed some money from my family i you know like i was like i was i was taking i was taking extra gigs and stuff as a musician to like knowing that like hey for the next 2 weeks i'm literally just paying for habaneros and garlic um so like there there was like a lot of a lot a lot of personal sacrifice in the first few years um and uh like I don't I'm not grudging about it I'm just that's just what it was right um but we kind of got to a point where I think it was it was 2015 when we made that decision so we had started in 2012 we had started kind of like out of our own kitchen like here try this what do you think in 2013 we were like you know, farmer's markets and driving it around a handful of places in Austin. So I don't want to compact this timeline. I spent a year driving around to, you know, 15, 20 places in Austin. Um, It wasn't like I did that for three weeks and then Whole Foods came knocking. So 2013, you know, and then 2014 Whole Foods was like, hey, we'd like to give this a try. Um, So again, like i I went out and we got a commercial kitchen that's a a dedicated kitchen. It was 1500 square feet. Um, It was just an awful building, terrible landlord. Um, But I signed the lease because I, you know, I knew that I had, you know, I was going to have to put out, you know, 80 cases of hot sauce a week. Um, And it was just me. It was just me doing that, you know, stirring hot sauce and, and putting it in bottles with a funnel and, all this sort of stuff, you know, really high tech stuff, you know, like we, and we did that for a handful of years. And one of the things that kept happening is that we kept having more demand than we could handle, right? Like people laughingly will say, well, that's a good problem to have. Sure. Yeah. Like I'd rather have that problem than the other problem where nobody wants your stuff. Um, but it's still kind of a major problem, right? Like we, we missed a lot of opportunity, um, because we couldn't make enough sauce because we couldn't, because we didn't have marketing dollars for a certain, you know, promotion, or we didn't have, you know, slotting money to, you know, like, Hey, this store wants to take, you know, this chain wants to take you in 200 stores in 2015, well, that's just too damn bad because we, cause they also want to charge us, you know, slotting fee and and marketing dollars and they want us to do demos and I can't afford any of that stuff. Right. So like we were kind of like, I I don't don't know if at the end of our rope is the right, is the right scenario, but it was, you know, for all those years, it was just me and Aaron, you know, like putting labels on bottles, you know, like you twist the cap on, I'll put the label on. Um, Meanwhile, we're still trying to like pay our bills and like have a, you know, working other jobs and things like this. So for the, for that first, like, you know two three three and a half years that's kind of like and we were super excited to like see it growing we we're selling online we we're selling to you know to whole foods a handful of other places it was doing really well in all the places where we were kind of like selling it but it was not a sustainable model you know like if that was if that was the if that was how the model was still working now like i would be out of it i'd, I'd be doing something else i couldn't handle that forever you know So like one of the things we sat down and we did some like serious soul searching. It was like, look, this thing, um, people love it. It's got legs. We love it. We love doing it. Um, it's something that we personally believe in. Like I, you know, I, I adamantly believe that this, that you know, organic farming is important that getting people better food is important. Um, you know, like I grew up in a food family where like food was just, you know, having good food and providing, good food for people was how you showed them love. And that, you know, so like that, that's something that I believe is important. And uh, we said, like, we kind of sat down and said like, Hey, at this point, we have a business model. We have several different versions of a business model. What does it look like for us to keep doing it? Like it is now. And we put all this down on paper, on in Excel, like whatever, like what does it look like for us to keep doing it as it is now? And what would it take for us to, make this a national brand. And I've, I've had a lot of really great mentorship. I should also mention just in Austin around some of the brands that have come out of here. So I wasn't making these decisions or these projections in a vacuum. I kind of was like, you know, getting, getting a bunch of really smart input to this stuff as well. So like, we are like, what does it take for us to be a national brand? And we put it out all, all out on paper and it's like, well, there's, there's, not a great way for us to be a national brand without without take, getting some money from somewhere um and the first thing that i did was i i went to banks right like hey this is a small you know we're a small business like can we get a small business loan um and i i heard nothing but nos and you know like come back we'll come back to us when you have 500 stores or come back to us when you have this profitability number and i had a model that was like i'm never going to get to this amount of stores to this, you know, profitability number without like, I, I, there, there has to be a middle place somewhere where like, you know, like I can, I can put some money into equipment. I can put some money into like hiring somebody to come help me. Like I can put some money into slotting or distribution. Like I, I have to like put some money into it um, so that it can get to this point where like every bank that we talked to was like, yeah, you know, once you're doing 5 million in sales, we'll happily bank you. And I'm like, how am I supposed to get there? Like, we've got it on paper, like, you have to sell a lot of hot sauce to do $5 million in sales, right? So like, that that was kind of the, you know, that was kind of the point that we got to is like, hey, it's not, it's not commercially bankable. Um, We got to go to some other sources. So we I mean, that's, that was the that was the decision. It was like, hey, if we're all in on this, then we need some help. We need some financial help to do it. And, you know, we need all kinds of help to do it. We need marketing help, distribution help, sales help. Um, and none of that stuff is free. So it's, uh, you know, it was like that, that was the, that's when we made the decision in, uh, it was late 2015 that to do what we want to do with this brand, with the, with this product, that, that it is going to take some money and that it's not, it's not available via conventional banking banking. Um, so we just, we just started doing, I mean, I just, I just started doing what, you know, one of the like two things I'm good at, which is just having conversations with people and saying like, how do you do this? Cause that, that was my first question was like, how, how does one raise money for, you know, let's assume that you're not, that you're a company that's not, you know, traditionally bankable. How do you raise money? If you, if you didn't come up in that environment, I think some people are, kind of native to that environment, but I'm, I wasn't. So I, you know, I didn't know the funds. I didn't know the, you know, family groups to talk to. So I just started talking to whoever I could talk to. And, you know, a big part of it, a big part of how we raised that initial money is that we found, you know, we talked to enough people that we found the right people who were, uh, who were interested in our product and as passionate about our brand as we were, and that we were like really you know, we were all in on it, you know, like, we weren't, it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, hey, maybe you give us some money, and maybe we'll do it, like, this is vibes, like, that. you know, that was, that was our pitch, is like, here's the business plan, but, like, part of what you get you know, for the money is that like the people who did it are like all in on making it the best thing that it can possibly be.
0: Next up, we have Jessica and Rod from love every develops and sells stage-based play essentials designed by experts built for babies and toddlers up to age three. So Jessica and Rod, what was your approach to fundraising initially? So our fundraising
5: strategy generally has been all about relationships uh and i think it was that that has taken a you know different shape with each uh each success successive uh fundraise that we've done uh the first the first raise was you know to find a, a convertible note and it was almost entirely through our our personal networks uh, so jessica and i basically built a pipeline of all the people we knew who we thought uh, would be interested either because they were active angels or uh, had invested uh, with with Jessica's you know venture before with happy family uh, or or because we we knew they would be passionate about the idea. And um, in some ways, as we've gone to bigger raises um, and gotten a little bit more institutional, and our capital structure—it uh, really hasn't changed that much because uh, we still think of these as relationships that we're building, and we're still looking for uh, folks who are aligned with our values, folks who are passionate about what we're passionate about, who just like who get it. And um, and so, in some ways, it hasn't changed that much. But we were very very angel oriented early on, and uh, you know, we didn't really have. Uh, any institutionals um, for the most part, uh, maybe one or two in, in the seed round. And then our series A was still majority angels and Jessica and I actually priced that round ourselves. Uh, and then the B was led by Maveron, uh, had Google Ventures, Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, Collaborative Fund, others, and uh, Reach Capital. Uh, and uh, and that, was, that was predominantly institutional. But, um, but again, uh, the, the people who are participating in that, uh, it was all relationships that we've been building over time and, and which we thought were well aligned with what we were trying to do.
0: What were some of your biggest hurdles um, when fundraising?
6: I mean, I would say that uh, if, if somebody kind of could transcend thinking about us as a toy company. I think we, we had a shot at having, you know, being able to have a great kind of conversation. I think that, you know, I think being able to transcend like the niche, the reputation of just like, okay, this is like kind of a niche space um you're working in a sort of like an older industry the multiples aren't good um you're really making like some great toys i think if if people saw us as that um it it didn't go very far so i think that was one of our biggest hurdles
0: what are some so maybe advice that you might have for founders that are located in secondary and tertiary markets that are looking to raise from institutional investors was that ever an issue since you're both located in in idaho so
5: it was not an issue for us. And I think part of that is because Jessica and I are are experienced entrepreneurs and we have, we have a pretty strong network already, which, you know, I think we're, we're privileged to have that. And it's something that's not necessarily fair about this world, but, uh, we didn't have, we didn't have that issue. I think another reason why it wasn't an issue for us is we were always happy to get on a plane and make it a non-issue. So, we were showing up uh, multiple times a month in the cities we needed to be in uh, to make it as frictionless as possible to have the conversations we needed to have. And it's it's tough advice to give uh, during this time when folks are social distancing and not traveling as much, but in whatever way you can, you want to show up, you want to be as frictionless as possible uh, for whoever it is that you're pitching, so that they don't see any kind of a cost related
0: to wherever you may be. What's one thing that you would change when it came to fundraising?
6: So, one of the things that I think was really rem- that Rod and I remarked on in our fundraising process was how much our network and how much our privilege in having that network really impacted our success. So, what we heard when we first started kind of figuring out the rules of raising institu- institutional capital, because like, frankly, neither one of us had actually directly raised institutional capital. With Happy Family, I'd raised all, um, from all most, you know, really primarily individuals. And with Rod, he supported the co-founders in, they were primary in raising that institutional capital for his last company. And so you know i think for us like we were told that we just you know we really need an intro a warm intro that they won't really look at you and they won't you know that a, that a vc firm won't really look at you unless they get an email intro from either another founder or somebody that they know and um i don't we don't know how true this truly is and if uh vcs are actually looking at the open field you know email at you know vcfund.com if they're really reading those emails and those kind of cold uh, the bids for, for a review, but we felt like the, the, the insider game was, was to get these intros. And so it just, it really, I think for us, um, was surprising that it was that that you know kind of like it just felt like a perpetuation of sort of our privilege. We were able to get over that. We we have a you know we ended up digging deep into our networks. We created a spreadsheet and we had a process to ask people, do you know anybody at this fund? Okay, is this intro going to be better coming from this person or that person? And it really opened a lot of doors for us. And we were able to get that first meeting. Um, But I would say if we were hoping that something could change about the industry, it would be that there would be more of a space for that cold, (laughs) the cold call.
0: Well, and there you have it. I hope that was helpful, especially if you're a founder that's currently fundraising. Feel free to check out each of their full episodes for more. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.